You're listening to the Careers Talk podcast series, a Salt Studios production. When you finish your studies with a degree in law or medicine, there's a career pathway forward, but it can be very different in a creative field. While you might have the degree and be backed by experience, your talents and skills are subjective and getting the role, whether acting or musical, often comes down to the personal preferences of others. It's difficult to get regular work in the entertainment industry, let alone become a respected name. That's what soprano Antoinette Halloran has done, but it's taken a lot of hard work and rejection to get there. In this episode, we discuss how she got her opportunities, how she deals with being told she's not good enough, and her career highlights. Okay, Antoinette, so you've got your degree now, you've done all your study, you've got all your experience, uh, you've got big dreams about what you want to achieve. What do you do next? Audition. Audition, audition. <laughs> and I imagine that hasn't stopped? <laughs> it, ha- it gets better because people get to know your work and you sort of sometimes you don't have to audition so much, but still you do occasionally. But I always say to my students I could wallpaper a, r- a house, not a room, a house in my rejection letters. So just keep going, just keep auditioning. <laughs> I guess there's no pathway to success for someone in your industry. If you're a lawyer and you very nearly were after two days, you know, there's a career progression to get to the top there. I, I guess there is to a degree with what you're doing now, but it comes with time in the game. So you're auditioning, you're auditioning, you're auditioning. Are you successful? I auditioned for a man called Richard Gill, who, God love him, has passed away a few years ago, and he was just incredible. He was a great educator. He was a, a conductor. He was just amazing. And he auditioned for him when I was 21, when I just finished VCA, and I sang, and he said to me, you have a beautiful instrument, but I'm not giving you this job. You're not ready. And I came out to the car, and I was, like, elated. <gasps> And mum said, did you get it? And I said, no. <laughs> but he told me to keep going and that was really, really inspiring to me. And then funnily enough, when I was about 27, I went back and auditioned for Mimi in La Boheme for Oz Opera, which is the young, the youth touring arm of Opera Australia. And Richard Gill was the person auditioning me and he gave me the role and that was it. That was the role that just um, put me in the sights of the company and pretty much it all happened from there. So what happened in those six years between being rejected by him and being accepted by him? Well, that was when I did a lot of um, working, waitressing, travelling, but then I also did my honours year at Melbourne University and, uh, and when I was travelling, whenever I could, if I was in Germany, I'd do a German course. If I was in Italy, I'd do an Italian course. I just kept keeping my hand in the game and I'd also seek out singing teachers wherever I'd go. So my sister was living in Boston for a while and I went to the New England Academy and had lessons there in Boston. So wherever I was, I just kept chipping away at the technique. The last time I was in Italy, I got funding for lessons and I had a lesson, a singing lesson every day for three months. So you're travelling, you've come back to uh, get your honours, you've finally got your first professional or big time gig. Are you nervous, excited? Uh, What's the overriding emotion? Well, the really interesting thing was I felt ready. I was nervous, but I felt ready. And that was the first time even like I wanted to be an opera singer forever, but I never really thought, can I really, really do this? And when I got that job, I thought, oh, I can do this. I can do this. I'm ready. But I was nervous and I was worried that I was good enough and all that stuff, but I knew I could sing the role from go to woe. 
What was the role? It was Mimi in La Boheme, so it's a fantastic role. For those that don't know much about opera, it's the story that Baz Luhrmann based Moulin Rouge on. So Mimi is basically the character Nicole Kidman played. So it's a, it's a seamstress who lives alone in an attic um, and one day she needs a light for her candle so she goes downstairs and meets an artist and a writer who live downstairs. Um, she falls in love with the writer. They introduce themselves and sing these really beautiful songs to each other. Uh, then it becomes clear that she's got consumption and she's dying and it's, uh, yeah, it's sort of a sad opera. She dies in the end, as you do. The rehearsal process for this or the rehearsal stage, how long did it go for? How many nights of the week were you practising this stage show uh, leading into its run? Uh, It was about a four-month contract and about five weeks of that was rehearsing, so four weeks rehearsing, one week getting it ready with the orchestra on the stage, and then we toured around regional Victoria and South Australia with it. Um, and did sort of regional shows like Wagga Wagga and Dubbo and Orange and those sort of places. So it wasn't the main stage of Opera Australia, but it was a, it was still a very legitimate job. And at what point did you say, okay, well, I'm going to try and get a, a show within a capital city? I just kept auditioning. So being doing Oz Opera and getting in the eye of Opera Australia uh, sort of put me in, in, in their minds. So I did Oz Opera for two years and on the third year they took me out of it and put me on the main stage in the same role. So within three years I was singing Mimi at the Opera House, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, absolutely it is. I would imagine uh, at the Opera House, mistakes, probably not a great thing to do. Did you get all your mistakes out when you were touring regional Australia? There was one night where I made it, I went for a high note and something happened to my vocal cords and I went up the octave beyond the high note and apparently only dogs could hear it. (laughs) It was so high. Just, you know, you can't help those little tickles you might get or or things like that. So occasionally something won't go perfectly to plan. Um, I actually did once get the giggles on the Opera House stage because my co-star was hilarious and um, I couldn't stop laughing. And how do you deal with that in the moment when you've got eyes all over the place right on you? I was just bent over the set crying and tears were coming down my face. There was nothing I could do. I missed, I missed about half a song. <laughs> I was in the moment. I don't know if anyone noticed, but <laughs> I also thought this is a very long orchestral interlude. <laughs> and if it does happen to you, and I guess this is relevant for the audience that's listening too because they're going to go on the stage and quite possibly make mistakes every so often. Is it just something you just have to deal with and roll with the punches and move on as quick as you can? Or do you just acknowledge that, hey, you've made the mistake and learn from it? Or um, what do you do? To my co-stars who know the opera, I would say, oh, God, I'm so sorry. That was terrible. But to the audience, you just would never want them to see it. So, you know, I have students that do a recital and halfway through the recital go, oh, like that. And I just say, don't do it because we mightn't have noticed, but if you pull a face or let us know you've made a mistake, we then know you have. So most of the time in opera, most of the audience wouldn't know if there's a mistake. And if they did, would they uh, be pretty forgiving? I think they'd probably love it because it's unusual. It's unusual that something goes wrong like that. Yeah. I mean, as I say, I can't really, besides the giggling and the high note, <laughs> I can't really remember any major mistakes I've made. The best part about performing is being so prepared that it's fun. If you're sort of like, oh God, what, how does this go again? It would be terrifying and, and you wouldn't want to go on stage. 
You mentioned earlier that you could wallpaper your house with every rejection letter you've received over the years. How do you keep on going? That's a lot of rejection. There's got to be some sort of mindset trick or resilience that you've got in place that helps you just deal with that. Yeah, well, I used to um, not deal with it very well, but now it's it still hurts a bit. Like even that latest audition that I did, which, which they asked me to fly up and do it. I assumed I was in the running. And they As were you just, would, you yeah. Know, yeah. So they, and it still gets your psyche a bit. It, it, it had just come off the end of a really successful season of something else I'd done and it sort of took the shine off that. So it still does hurt. The best word I ever learned is a German word and it's Geschmackssache, which this German lady once told me. We were on a panel auditioning people. And um, she, I loved someone and she didn't. And she said, it's Geschmackssache, which means it's a matter of taste. Once you're at the audition, the level where you're singing for Opera Australia and you're auditioning for all the major companies, you're all at a really high level. And so the only thing that's going to really distinguish you is taste. And it's a taste of the person auditioning. So that's just what I go with now. I mean, I might have gone up to do that Cinderella audition and someone might have thought, she's brunette, we wanted blonde. I'm also keen to get a sense of how you've forged a career in what is a very fickle and unstable industry. How have you survived for so long? I can laugh at myself. Simple and as I that? Can, I, I can laugh at the world. It is, it is as simple as that. I think I can, I can roll my eyes and roll with the punches and just go, oh, well, you know, I do a lot of yoga. That helps. <laughs> so just not, but um, you can't take it really seriously and you can't, hope for any kind of trajectory you just you do you just have to roll with the punches and I went through a point where I the phone didn't stop ringing and I was working so hard and I was doing every role and getting every offer from every company and then for some unknown reason the phone just stopped ringing and I got no offers and for two years I just I was just like eh, no one wanted to touch me and then it came back again and so you just there's no rhyme or reason to it all you can do is try and get your technique as good as it can be and throw yourself into every opera like it's your last and, and that's really all you can do. So what were you doing in those two years when the phone wasn't calling to keep yourself mentally ready for when the next opportunity came along? You take sort of smaller roles and things that normally you wouldn't have thought, oh, I don't want to do that. And, and that's really good for you too. I mean, that's what I say, you can't have an ego in this industry. So you go from being a leading lady in Madame Butterfly and then the next thing you know you're in sort of the ensemble of a musical and you're being pushed around by another chorus girl telling you where to stand who's never done anything in her life and she's telling you where to go, you know. Not that you've got a problem with it, right? <laughs> I had a huge problem with it. But you just have to laugh about it and roll with the, roll with the punches. So how have you gone about then keeping yourself front of mind? Obviously you've gone from a, a place in time when the phone does not stop to a time when the phone does stop. You've gone and done those shows that you ne necessarily wouldn't do. Um, why does the phone then start calling again and, and why do you start suddenly getting those opportunities after so long? I think for me with that hiatus in my career was because I was so busy and and constantly working and giving up my all and loving it, I also was forgetting just how much I did love it. And it was the break and the fear that I might be going away that made me then value every job that came in. So if I was playing, say, stepmother in Into the Woods, which isn't a big role, it would get everything I could put into that to make it resonate um, in the same way that Madame Butterfly had a couple of years earlier. And so and then I think people started to go, oh, wow, that's, uh, you know, 
a good rendition of a very small role and then I think I was recognised again. And But you do, you, know, you do need the people that see you as an artist and mentor you through and, and if you're lucky enough to just get one or two of them, like I have Richard Gill and there's another man called Stuart Maunder and they see what I can do and they foster it and give you these great opportunities because after doing the stepmother in Into the Woods, he gave me Mrs Lovett in Sweeney Todd, which is which has been one of the greatest roles of my career and which I've done four times and will probably do again. So it's just those being lucky enough to be seen as an artist, to be recognised and then to be nurtured as well. Some advice there, would you say, to our audience who are listening is to form those connections, build those relationships with people who can help and support you later on? Oh, absolutely. But it's for me it was more organic than that. It was just someone who saw the light come on in what I could do as an artist. So I just had to work hard for him. I didn't have to sort of foster. Same with Richard Gill. I didn't, they just, they wanted to use me and that was the, the greatest compliment they could pay me. The fact that they're lovely men and, you know, nurturing souls is another sort of byproduct. But it just, they just had to see that I could do the job and then think, well, she could do this job. She could do that job. What would be some advice from you to one of our audience members who's about to embark on a performance career? If you want to pursue it, go for it. It's amazing. And what about your wish for the future of your industry? What do you want to do? Where do you want to go next? Um, I just want to keep performing. Like I hate the concept that older women, and I'm getting older, so I think I can say that, but don't have stories to tell or a place in the arts industry and I know that a lot of women my age and older are ignored because they're not the young happening things and stuff but there's so many roles and so many stories I want to tell. Such as what? Oh well I'm working on a proposal at the moment for a Helen Garner novel that we're turning into an opera and it's a story about two older women and if you think about it the women that buy the tickets to the opera are the older women so they don't want to come and just see 20 year olds singing about love they want to hear other things other stories other interesting things I mean and operas about things other than love and romance I just think there's more stories to be told so I hope to keep telling stories that are relevant to the audiences that we're performing to and if that play or that that opera gets the green light you're going to star in it as well not to play the starry role I'm sort of playing this sort of psychopathic <laughs> role <laughs> which I'm, I shouldn't say that but the unstable role which I'm actually really looking forward to I'm quite good at playing unstable <laughs> Yeah, right. So this is one project. What what are some of the other ideas you've got there? So I'm going to just start turning my hand to not just being a performer, but maybe being more of a uh, producer, uh, getting people together that I know are great and putting things on and not necessarily just opera, like mixing all the genres together and things like that. So I'm starting to just sort of broaden my opinion of what I can do and see if I can do more interesting stuff. And will you continue being a, a singing teacher as well? Yeah, I'll continue to be. I love that. Yeah, it's important and really lovely work, so I'm really proud that I can do that. And what are the sorts of things you're doing with them? I assume it's online. Yeah, so a lot of them are Melbourne University students, ranging from um, undergraduates to master's students. So we just do one-on-one lessons and just discussing techniques and um, repertoire and how to sing different repertoire, and it's really fabulous. I really love it. Now, Antoinette, I can't let you go without trying to find out what your career highlight is. If you look back on your entire time, what's the one piece that stands out? I can't go past Madame Butterfly. It's probably the piece that I've done the most performances of and it is sort of perfection. In the length of the opera, it's not too long. (laughs) There's no boring bits. 
it's basically a one-woman show. It's basically she's run, it's really a butterfly show. No one else really sings a proper aria. She's sort of running the joint and it's got this huge uh, acting arc from young girl to informed woman, mother. It's an amazing role, so I think that. And also I have to say Mrs Lovett in Sweeney Todd because it's just so much fun and hilarious, like being shot out of a gun and you just go for it and it's amazing. So both those roles are pretty amazing. Antoinette, thank you very much for sitting down and spending some time with us talking about your educational journey and, of course, your successful career as well. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's great to hear that even after huge success, Antoinette's drive to tell powerful stories and produce new operas is still strong. In a way, it's about reinventing herself by focusing on what she wants to do and giving back to an industry that she loves. It highlights the point that if you're working in an industry or career that you are passionate about, you'll always find a way to contribute and add value. You're listening to the Careers Talk podcast series, a Salt Studios production.